Section 3. The Facts About Aid. Chapter 6. How much does it cost to save a life, and how can you tell which charities do it best? Read by Nick D'Augusto, an American actor. The argument that we ought to be doing more to save the lives of people living in extreme poverty presupposes that we can do it, and at a moderate cost. But can we? If so, to which organization should we donate? It's a question all donors should ask themselves, yet only 38% of U.S. donors do any research at all, and only 9% compare different nonprofits. Perhaps those who do no research think that it will be too difficult to find out which charities offer better value, so they may as well give to whatever charity last caught their eye. Fortunately, identifying good giving options has become much easier than it used to be. That's in part because in 2006, a group of young analysts working for Bridgewater Associates LP, an American investment management firm, decided to donate some of their surprisingly high earnings to charity. But which charity? They all had different ideas, and as they spent their working days analyzing possible investments for their hedge fund, it was only natural that they would seek to find out which charities would give them the best return in terms of doing the most good with each dollar they donated. They wrote to their favorite charities, asking them what they would do with a substantial donation, and all they received were, as one colleague put it, lots of marketing materials which look nice, you know, pictures of sheep looking happy and children looking happy, but otherwise are pretty useless. So they began calling the charities directly and asking detailed questions about what they did with their money and what evidence they had that the money was doing what it was intended to do. It turned out to be surprisingly difficult to get a straight answer. One nonprofit representative accused them of trying to steal proprietary information. Another responded that the information they sought was confidential, implying that they did not want their donors to know what the organization was achieving with the donations it received. The investment analysts were astonished by how unprepared charities were for questions that went beyond such superficial and potentially misleading indicators of efficacy. Eventually, they realized something that seemed to them quite extraordinary. The reason they were not getting the information they wanted from the charities was that the charities themselves didn't have it. In most cases, neither the charities nor any independent agencies were doing the kind of rigorous evaluation of effectiveness that the analysts had assumed must be the basis of the decisions that major donors made before giving. If the information didn't exist, then both individual donors and major foundations were giving away huge sums with little idea of what effect their gifts were having. How could hundreds of billions of dollars be spent without some evidence that the money was doing good? Two members of the group, Holden Karnofsky and Ellie Hassenfeld, decided to do something about it. They founded GiveWell, a nonprofit dedicated to improving the transparency and effectiveness of charitable giving. At first, they planned to run the organization in their spare time. It soon became clear, however, that the task required full-time attention. So the following year, after raising $300,000 from their fellow workers, they left their hedge fund jobs and began working on GiveWell full-time. Finding charities that really make a difference. You have probably heard doubts expressed about what charities do with the money they are given and how much of it actually goes to the people it's intended to help rather than to administrative costs. It's good that people care about how their funds are used, 
But it's unfortunate that many seem to believe that not spending money on administration and fundraising is the most important factor to consider when selecting an organization to support. Before there was GiveWell, there was Charity Navigator, founded in 2001, which claims to be America's largest and most utilized evaluator of charities. It pulls together useful information, including the percentages of their income that charities spend on administration and fundraising. Its website includes a list of charities with perfect scores, the 1% of charities it assesses that receive a score of 100%. You might think, then, that these are the charities that will do the most good with whatever you can afford to give them, but you would be mistaken. As Charity Navigator itself says, the exceptional charities on this list execute their missions in a fiscally responsible way while adhering to good governance and other best practices that minimize the chance of unethical activities. Each has earned perfect scores for its financial health and its accountability and transparency. Knowing that a charity is in great financial health, practices good governance, is transparent and accountable, and is unlikely to be engaged in unethical activities is a start, but it isn't all that matters. And it doesn't answer Karnofsky and Hassenfeld's key question. How much good is the charity doing with each dollar it receives? One reason the figures don't necessarily tell the full story is that they're taken from forms the charities themselves complete and send to the tax authorities. No one checks the forms, and the breakdown between administrative and program expenses can be massaged with a little creative accounting. For example, staff working in an organization's head office may do some administrative work on an aid program, as well as performing more routine office tasks. And in that case, their time may be assigned largely to the aid program, so that a high proportion of their salaries is itemized as part of the aid budget rather than as office expenses. A more significant problem with focusing on how much of its income a charity spends on administration, however, is that this figure tells you nothing at all about the impact the charity is having. Indeed, the pressure to keep administrative expenses low can make an organization less effective. If, for example, an agency working to reduce global poverty cuts staff who have expert knowledge of the countries in which they work, the agency will have lower administrative costs and may appear to be getting a higher percentage of the funds it receives to people in need. But having removed its experts from the payroll, the agency may well be more likely to end up funding projects that fail. It may not even know which of its projects fail because evaluating projects and learning from mistakes requires highly qualified staff, and paying for them adds to administrative costs. Similarly, Offering a high salary to a chief executive will increase administrative expenses. For a large organization that raises and spends tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, however, the difference between getting an outstanding chief executive and an okay chief executive may be several million dollars in extra funds raised or in funds saved by more effective administration. So if a high salary is what it takes to attract an outstanding chief executive, who could probably earn much more in the for-profit sector anyway, that may be money well spent. But here is the most important reason why Charity Navigator's list of charities with 100% ratings is certain to include organizations that do much less good than other nonprofits that fail to score 100% for financial health, accountability, and transparency. Recall the words from Charity Navigator quoted above. The charities on their list executed their missions perfectly as far as Charity Navigator's criteria for financial health, accountability, and transparency are concerned. But at least until very recently, Charity Navigator hasn't asked what those missions might be. 
as long as the mission was good enough to persuade the U.S. Internal Revenue Service to grant charitable status to the organization, it was good enough for Charity Navigator. Recently, Charity Navigator has, to its credit, shifted away from its prior emphasis on overhead ratio as a measure of efficiency. In 2013, it joined with GuideStar and the BBB Giving Alliance in a campaign to end the overhead myth and combat the false conception that financial ratios are the sole indicator of nonprofit performance. This group later urged American nonprofits to play a role in focusing attention on what really matters, what the organization was doing to make the world a better place. The effort to eliminate the overhead myth was sorely needed. A 2010 report on donor behavior found that, for better or for worse, overhead ratio is the number one piece of information donors are looking for when seeking out information about a charity before they give. If successful, this shift could have a dramatic effect in encouraging nonprofits to report and donors to attend to impact information. That would radically improve the incentives of the nonprofit sector. Once we ask what organizations actually achieve for each dollar they receive, the vital importance of focusing on this question is immediately apparent. Some areas of charitable activity provide hundreds or even thousands of times greater benefits per dollar than others. And I'm not comparing fraudsters with genuine charities, but one genuine charity with another genuine charity. Consider this example, which I owe to Toby Ord. In affluent countries, there are charities that provide blind people with guide dogs. A good cause, right? Yes, it's good to provide people who cannot see with a trained dog to help them get around, but it isn't cheap. In the U.S., to breed, raise, train, and match a dog costs about $50,000. Now, if it is good to provide a blind person with a guide dog, it's even better to prevent someone becoming blind in the first place, isn't it? To restore sight to a blind person is also better than providing that person with a guide dog. Just ask someone who is blind whether they would rather have a guide dog or have their sight restored. But for much less than $50,000, we can prevent people becoming blind because of trachoma, which is the most common cause of preventable blindness globally, and we can restore sight to people who are blind because of operable cataracts. The cost for preventing blindness from trachoma, the most common cause of preventable blindness globally, has been estimated at $7.14, although this figure is from 2006. And trachoma can also be treated by surgery for an estimated cost of $27 to $50. When older people become blind because they have developed cataracts, there is a safe and simple surgical procedure to remove the cataracts and restore their sight. It too can be performed for as little as $50. Simple arithmetic then shows that, for the cost of placing one guide dog with one blind person, you could instead donate to an organization like SEVA or the Fred Hollows Foundation and provide surgery to restore sight to at least 1,000 people who cannot see. Or prevent, at a conservative estimate, allowing for a seven-fold increase in costs since 2006, a similar number of cases of blindness from trachoma. The discrepancy in the cost of preventing or curing blindness and providing a blind person with a guide dog is due to the fact that the inexpensive interventions are only necessary in low-income countries. Trachoma is a problem for people with poor hygiene who live in hot, dusty conditions. That situation is uncommon in affluent countries. But if trachoma does occur, then most high-income countries have universal health insurance, so it will be treated and will not lead to blindness. 
Similarly, people living in high-income countries who have developed cataracts that interfere with their eyesight will usually have them removed. Even in the United States, the only affluent country that lacks provision for universal health care, people over 65 have free health care through Medicare, and those who are under 65 but really poor can get it through Medicaid. In high-income countries, when it comes to improving people's health, the low-hanging fruit has all been picked. The Search for the Most Cost-Effective Charities When Holden Karnofsky and Ellie Hassenfeld started GiveWell, their first step was to invite charities to apply for grants of $25,000 in five broad humanitarian categories with an application process that required the organizations to provide information demonstrating that they were making measurable progress towards achieving their goals and to indicate the cost of their achievements. The idea was to encourage the charities to evaluate the effectiveness of what they were doing, while at the same time channeling money to the most effective charity in each category. For a new organization with limited resources and research capacity, it made sense to try to get the charities to do the work of demonstrating their effectiveness. But it was only partially successful. In 2007, GiveWell published the results of its investigation into the organizations that applied for a GiveWell grant in the category Saving Lives in Africa. Of the 59 applicant organizations, only 16 provided adequate information. The remainder described their activities, offering stories or newspaper articles about particular projects, but no detailed evidence showing the number of people who benefited, how they benefited, and what those activities cost. In its early days, GiveWell did research on the cost-effectiveness of programs helping the poor in low-income countries, as well as on programs helping the poor in the U.S. Soon, however, they decided to focus on the former for reasons we've already touched on in this audiobook. In affluent countries, even the poor are usually not in extreme poverty, defined as not having enough income to meet their basic needs. More importantly, it costs far more to save and improve the lives of people in affluent countries than it does to save the lives of people who are living on $2 per day or less without safe drinking water, sanitation, any form of food stamps or social welfare payments, or basic health care. Even with this narrower focus, the absence of good data meant that GiveWell needed to find the means to employ a team of researchers to find out which interventions are the most effective in helping people in extreme poverty and which organizations are providing them at the lowest cost. I'm pleased to say that many listeners of the first edition of this audiobook learned about GiveWell from it and provided financial support. Among them was one couple in an extraordinary position to enable GiveWell to tackle the task it faced. Dustin Moskovitz became wealthy by being a Facebook co-founder. Carrie Tuna, his wife, heads the couple's effort to do as much good as possible with that wealth. As Moskovitz put it, Carrie and I are stewards of this capital. It's pooled up around us right now, but it belongs to the world. We are not perfect in applying this attitude but we try very hard. Tuna says The Life You Can Save was one of the first books she read when she began to think about giving, and it became the catalyst for the approach she and Moskovitz took to their philanthropy. The couple were attracted by GiveWell's rigorous research and evidence-based approach. Tuna joined GiveWell's board in 2011, and the couple's foundation, Good Ventures, subsequently became one of GiveWell's major funders, which allowed the charity researcher to expand its capacity very considerably. In turn, Good Ventures has been a major user of GiveWell's research, thereby achieving more impact with its giving. The relationship between Good Ventures and GiveWell 
has continued to evolve and expand. Most notably, they partnered to form the Open Philanthropy Project, with Karnofsky serving as CEO. Open Philanthropy's mission is to give as effectively as we can and share our findings openly so that anyone can build on our work. Instead of limiting itself to GiveWell's traditional domain of charities that help people in extreme poverty, Open Philanthropy has embraced a strategy more like that used by venture capital investors. It is prepared to take risks in the expectation that a few huge winning bets will more than offset a large number of losses. Not all donors are in a position to pursue such a strategy, of course, and for them, GiveWell, led by Hassenfeld, has continued to provide recommendations, based on the best available evidence, for highly cost-effective means of helping people in extreme poverty. GiveWell's growth has been impressive. By the time this 10th anniversary edition of The Life You Can Save is published, GiveWell will have influenced over half a billion dollars in donations to its recommended charities working in global health and poverty reduction. Encouragingly, this growth has taken place within an expanding field of other organizations that provide guidance to potential donors, including Impact Matters, which performs impact audits and other evaluations of effectiveness, and the Center for High Impact Philanthropy, which publishes an annual giving guide. The Life You Can Save draws especially on work from GiveWell and Impact Matters for its recommendations. What it really costs to save a life. For saving lives on a large scale, it is difficult to beat some of the campaigns initiated by the World Health Organization, an arm of the United Nations founded in 1948 to provide leadership on global health issues. In the next chapter, we shall look in more detail at its leadership in the fight to end smallpox, but here, it is enough to mention its international campaign to immunize children against measles, which is estimated to have prevented 21.1 million deaths between 2000 and 2017. Regrettably, the prevalence of measles has increased since 2016 due to gaps in immunization and the impact of false rumors that the vaccine is unsafe. Notwithstanding the success of the measles immunization program, we can still ask if it was the best thing that the World Health Organization could have done with its resources. How much did the campaign cost per life saved? Without an answer to this question, it's going to be hard to decide how to use our money most effectively. Organizations often publish figures suggesting that lives can be saved for very small amounts of money. The World Health Organization, for example, estimates that many of the approximately 1.6 million people who die annually from diarrhea or its complications could be saved by an extraordinarily simple recipe for oral rehydration therapy. A large pinch of salt and a fistful of sugar dissolved in a jug of clean water. This life-saving remedy can be assembled for a few cents, if only people know about it. Similarly, childfund.org tells visitors to its website that when you give a mosquito net, you're saving a life, and says that a mosquito net costs $11. If we could accept these figures, GiveWell's job wouldn't be so hard. All it would have to do to know which organization can save lives in Africa at the lowest cost would be to pick the lowest figure. But while these low figures are undoubtedly an important part of the charity's efforts to attract donors, they are not an accurate measure of the true cost of saving a life. GiveWell found major gaps in the information on the cost of saving lives by providing oral rehydration treatment for diarrhea. The treatment itself may cost only a few cents, 
but it also costs money to get it to each home and village so that it will be available when a child needs it and to educate families in how to use it. One study, dating from 2006, indicated that the cost of saving a life by providing education about diarrhea and its treatment can be as little as $14 in areas where the disease is most common, but as much as $500 where diarrhea is less prevalent. Taking all these factors into account, in 2006, economist William Easterly suggested that the World Health Organization's programs for reducing deaths from malaria, diarrhea, respiratory infections, and measles had cost roughly $300 per life saved. For another example, and a more current figure, let's look at the cost of saving a life by distributing bed nets in malaria-prone regions. Bed nets will, if used properly, prevent people from being bitten by mosquitoes while they sleep and therefore will reduce the risk of malaria. But not every net saves a life. Most children who receive a net would have survived without it. Unless we know how many nets have to be distributed in order to save a life, we can't estimate the cost of saving a life by distributing nets. Taking such questions into account, at present, 2019, GiveWell estimates the median cost per death averted with Against Malaria Foundation's bed net program to be somewhere in the range of $3,000 to $5,000. Top Charities Over the past decade, GiveWell has conducted a long list of in-depth investigations looking to identify charities whose activities can be strongly connected via empirical evidence to improved life outcomes. Here are some of the charities recommended at the time of writing by GiveWell and The Life You Can Save. But both these organizations update their recommendations each year, drawing on the latest evidence available, so check their websites before you donate. Preventing Malaria in tropical and subtropical regions, malaria takes an enormous toll in health, lives, livelihoods, and national economies. Each year, over 200 million people become infected, resulting in some 435,000 deaths. 61% of these deaths are of children under five years old, making malaria one of the leading causes of child mortality in Africa. Even when non-fatal, Malaria can damage a child's cognitive development. It is also highly dangerous for pregnant women. For other adults, it is a horribly unpleasant, debilitating disease that produces high fever, as I know only too well having contracted it in New Guinea when I was still a student. Without effective drugs, it can keep recurring for many years. In the Sahel, an African region with particularly high rates of malaria, Malaria Consortium is the largest implementer of a program called Seasonal Malaria Chemoprevention, in which four monthly doses of anti-malarial drugs are administered to children during the peak malaria season. The World Health Organization reports that Seasonal Malaria Chemoprevention has been proven to reduce the incidence of attacks of malaria and of severe cases by about 75% and could avert millions of cases and thousands of deaths among children. Malaria Consortium estimates the total cost for providing this treatment during the peak danger rainy season to be as low as $3.40 per child. Another proven method of preventing malaria has already been mentioned, distributing bed nets and educating families on how to use them. The Against Malaria Foundation is a highly efficient distributor of bed nets, 
and follows up the initial distribution with adults to determine what proportion of the nets distributed are in use and that nets are being used properly. An AMF net costs only $2, and each net will protect two people for up to three years. Thanks to support from sponsors for other costs, AMF is able to put 100% of donations from the public toward net purchasing. Vitamin A supplementation. Vitamin A deficiency is the leading cause of preventable blindness in children and increases the risk of disease and death from severe infections. Helen Keller International facilitates mass distributions of vitamin A supplements to prevent blindness and make communities healthier. Each supplement costs less than $1 to deliver, so it's not surprising that Helen Keller International's Vitamin A Supplementation Program is on GiveWell's top charities list for 2018 and is a recommendation of the life you can save. Preventing Malnutrition The World Health Organization has said that the widespread deficiency of key micronutrients such as iodine and vitamin A threatens the health and growth of people in low-income countries. Children and pregnant women are especially vulnerable. For children, in addition to potentially causing death, such deficiencies can lead to a range of debilitating diseases and disabilities, including stunting in height and brain development. Simple, inexpensive, basic nutritional support can give the populations at risk a healthier life. Project Healthy Children makes GiveWell's standout charities list for 2018 and is recommended by The Life You Can Save for its work fortifying the food eaten by people who would otherwise lack essential micronutrients. This can be done at an estimated average cost of as little as 26 cents per person per year, thanks to the use of digital technology that, even in remote areas, can be used to improve efficiency. Worldwide, Project Healthy Children's food fortification programs benefit more than 55 million people and their goal is to reach 100 million people by 2025. Promoting Healthy Behavior Development Media International, another organization on GiveWell's list of standout charities and recommended by The Life You Can Save, seeks to change the behavior of people in low-income countries in ways that will improve their health. Its main means of doing this is advertising on local radio stations. In 2018, Development Media International published the results of a randomized trial conducted in Burkina Faso, demonstrating that mass media can change health behaviors. In the trial, seven local radio stations broadcast radio spots 10 times a day, 365 days a year, promoting behaviors such as going to an antenatal care center when pregnant and going to a doctor when one has symptoms of malaria, pneumonia, or diarrhea. In seven other areas, no such radio spots were broadcast. The independently evaluated trial showed that after one year of the campaign, the number of children with malaria, pneumonia, and diarrhea taken to health facilities increased by 56%, 39%, and 73% respectively, compared to the control zones. Subsequent analysis estimated that the three-year campaign saved the lives of 2,967 children under five and of 39 women. The low cost of the advertising meant that the cost per life saved was $756, which is among the cheapest life-saving interventions anywhere. But the study also projected even lower costs for other African countries with greater population density and media penetration. 
For Malawi, for example, the cost per life saved was projected to be only $196. That's a lot of statistics. And as we saw in Chapter 4, people are more likely to act when the victim, or in this case the beneficiary, is identifiable. So let me share a father's story of how a simple radio message helped save the life of his daughter. My name is Tibandiba Lankowande, and my daughter is called Marieta. Three years ago, my wife let Marieta sleep outside while she went to work in the fields. When she came back, Marieta had a high fever. We thought she had fallen under a curse. People here believe that can happen if a bird flies over a child while they sleep outside. I consulted traditional healers and spent most of my money on traditional remedies and medicine bought at the market, but nothing worked, and on the sixth day, she fell into a coma. That night, a neighbor came to visit, and he was listening to his portable radio. That's when I heard a message on the radio explaining how to recognize the symptoms of malaria in children and saying that parents should take them immediately to the health center. As soon as I heard it, I took her straight to the health center. They told me she had severe malaria. They treated her, and after a week, she recovered. After we got back from the health center, the first thing I did was buy a radio. Since then, the radio and I are inseparable. My daughter is now four. Everyone calls her the child of the radio. If I hadn't heard the radio message, she wouldn't be alive today. Restoring Sight Worldwide, 36 million people live with blindness and another 217 million are visually impaired. Yet three out of four of these cases are preventable, and, as we have seen, often at low cost. Nearly 90% of those affected live in low-income countries, where malnutrition, poor water quality, and a lack of sanitation spread diseases that damage vision, while inadequate health care and health education impede access to treatment. In the 1960s, Australian ophthalmologist Fred Hollows was struck by the poor health, including a high incidence of trachoma, he saw among indigenous communities in rural and remote areas in his home country. Then in the 1980s, he traveled on behalf of the World Health Organization to India, Nepal, and Eritrea, and was deeply troubled by the pervasive eye problems in those countries. From then until his death in 1993, he devoted his time and expertise to bringing simple, sight-restoring procedures to people who would otherwise have no access to them. To Hollows, it was obscene to let people go blind when they don't have to. He regarded what he and his co-workers were doing as giving these people the chance to help themselves, giving them independence. A year before he died, knowing that he had cancer and not much time left, Hollows and his wife, Gabby, established the Fred Hollows Foundation to keep his vision alive and to carry on his work. An important aspect of the Foundation's work is training local surgeons, not only to perform operations themselves, but also to help train other surgeons, thereby multiplying the capacity of low-income countries to take care of the eyes of their people. The work of Dr. Sanduk Ruit, who met Hollows in Nepal during the 1980s and was inspired by his work, illustrates the power of this approach. Dr. Ruit has pioneered cataract surgery techniques, enabling him to conduct the sight-restoring procedure in under 10 minutes. With his own hands, he has restored sight to approximately 120,000 people, and counting. And he is indirectly responsible, through training other surgeons in his techniques, for many more people being able to see again. 
The Fred Hollows Foundation estimates that it has supported more than 4 million eye operations and treatments, which have included restoring sight to more than 2.5 million people. The World Bank says that procedures such as cataract surgery rank among the most cost-effective of all health interventions and are feasible to promote globally. It's easy to appreciate that being blind in a poor country where there is little support for people with disabilities is significantly worse than being blind in a rich nation. Restoring sight not only greatly helps those unable to see, it also enables them to contribute once again to their family and community. In India, according to one study, 85% of men and 58% of women who lost their jobs because of blindness were able to regain employment after their sight had been restored. In the case of children, preventing or overcoming blindness can be life-saving. In low-income countries, children who become blind are much more likely to die within the next year than other children, and those who survive are unlikely to be able to attend school or live a normal, productive life. SEVA is another organization that addresses eye care, with particular emphasis on protecting and restoring sight in underserved communities, focusing on women, children, and indigenous people. Their work includes creating community-based vision centers that provide jobs as well as long-term eye care. SEVA's programs have helped 5 million people in more than 20 countries regain their sight, often with cataract surgeries that the organization reports cost as little as $50 each. Both the Fred Hollows Foundation and SEVA are recommended by The Life You Can Save. Giving Young Women Their Lives Back Obstetric fistula is an injury women can suffer when giving birth. It is caused by unrelieved obstructed labor, during which the baby usually dies. In high-income countries, prolonged obstructed labor is generally resolved by a surgeon performing a cesarean birth. But in places where women give birth without access to emergency obstetric care and a birth is obstructed, labor may go on for days. The pressure of the baby's head against the pelvis reduces the blood supply to pelvic organs and can kill tissue, leaving a hole, known as a fistula, in the vagina, bladder, and sometimes the rectum. These holes cause incontinence. Women with fistula continually leak urine and or feces from their vaginas and are often ostracized within their families and communities. At least a million women suffer from this condition in countries where dire poverty and low status of women and girls prevail. The only cure for obstetric fistula is expert surgical repair, which the impoverished women most likely to suffer from obstetric fistula are unable to afford. As a result, they are often disabled by their injury for years or even decades. In 1959, Catherine and Reginald Hamlin, specialists in obstetrics and gynecology from Australia and New Zealand respectively, visited Ethiopia and after seeing the problems women there faced due to lack of medical care, decided to stay. Hospitals often turned away women with fistulas because their condition was not life-threatening and they were difficult to keep clean. So the Hamlins established the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital, now Hamlin Fistula, Ethiopia. Catherine Hamlin, now in her 90s, has continued this work after the death of her husband. The Catherine Hamlin Fistula Foundation has treated more than 60,000 women and is expanding from Ethiopia into Uganda. Patients receive customized care, including nutrition, physiotherapy, counseling, and rehabilitation, which can include vocational training. When they are ready to be discharged, 
the women are given their bus fare home and a new dress. Hamlin describes a scene she has seen thousands of times. We've got this girl with her whole life ahead of her, and if she's not cured, it's going to be a misery and a horror to her forever. So the joy of seeing a young girl normal again and going home in a new dress with a smile on her face and literally on dancing feet is something that really warms our hearts. Not all the patients go home after being discharged. Mamitu Gashe was 15 and illiterate when, after three days' labor, she delivered a stillborn baby and found herself with a fistula that made her incontinent. She was taken to the hospital in Addis Ababa and had a successful operation. She didn't want to go back to her village and was offered a job making beds in the hospital. She began watching Reg Hamlin do his surgeries, and eventually he allowed her to participate at first in a minor way, but gradually doing more and more until she developed sufficient skill to do the fistula operation herself. Now, with many more years of experience, but still without having even attended primary school, let alone medical school, she is training gynecologists who come from many other countries to the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital. Fistula Foundation is another organization that is having a dramatic impact on restoring health to fistula sufferers in poor countries around the world. Since 2009, Fistula Foundation has funded more than 40,000 obstetric fistula surgeries in 31 countries in Africa and Asia, more globally than any other organization. They cover the cost of surgery itself, as well as a range of related components that include anesthesia, nursing care, and supplies. The foundation rigorously reviews all potential partners to ensure it funds reputable local surgeons in regions with the greatest need, as well as monitoring performance and conducting field visits. In 2009, when Fistula Foundation expanded its mission to combat fistula everywhere, its first partner was Dr. Dennis Mukwege, a gynecological surgeon who founded Ponzi Hospital in the Democratic Republic of Congo. From the base of his hospital, which treats victims of sexual violence as well as poverty, Mukwege has been forthright in his denunciations of the crimes committed by the armed groups that have operated in the Democratic Republic of Congo for more than 20 years. In 2018, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts for peace and his work for women stricken by poverty and war. Both Hamlin and Fistula Foundation estimate the cost for full fistula surgery and rehabilitation services to be around $650 to $700 per woman. Just for comparison, as I was writing this account, I checked on the cost of tickets for Lady Gaga's next concert, which happened to be in Las Vegas in May 2019. They started at $762 and went up from there. So what is more important to you? Seeing Lady Gaga perform for a couple of hours? Or giving a young woman her life back? More good things that can be done cheaply. There are many more examples of how a relatively small donation can do a lot of good. If you are considering donating to a charity recommended by The Life You Can Save, you can use the organization's impact calculator to show what the amount you donate will achieve. On current estimates, a $50 donation could deliver treatments through the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, or Evidence Actions Deworm the World program to protect an estimated 100 or more children from parasitic worm infections, preventing life-threatening conditions including bladder cancer, kidney malfunction, spleen damage, and anemia. 
deliver through the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, or the Iodine Global Network, a year of iodized salt for an estimated 500 people, improving health and protecting against iodine deficiency disorders such as brain damage. By means of Evidence Actions Dispensers for Safe Water program, provide safe drinking water to an estimated 40 community members for one year. Cover production costs of 100 Zusha driver safety awareness stickers to place in buses, where they have been proven to significantly reduce accidents and injuries. Take care of the annual costs of high-quality health care for two patients in remote Nepal offered by Possible, including home visits and surgery, with no fee for service at the point of care. Avert an estimated two years of sickness and disability for those in low-income countries through disease prevention and treatment, maternal health, family planning, and other health services from Population Services International. Enable One Acre Fund to supply a farm family of six with inputs such as seeds, fertilizer, training, and market access support to increase production and profits by an average of 50% in a single season. Pay for training and support of a living goods community health worker to reach 30 Ugandans for one year with essential health information, counseling, diagnosis, referral, and treatment. There is still a lot of work to be done in evaluating the effectiveness of various programs. And it isn't easy to give precise figures for the cost of the different benefits we can provide by donating to effective organizations. Still, let's bring together some of the most up-to-date 2019 figures for some of the interventions suggested in this chapter with the organizations recommended by The Life You Can Save that provide these interventions. Saving a Life by Health Education Radio Advertising in Burkina Faso, Burundi, Malawi, Mozambique, and Niger, $196 to $756. Projected cost for 2018 to 2020, varying by country, Development Media International. Saving a Life by Giving Anti-Malarial Drugs to Children During the Peak Malaria Season, $2,041. Malaria Consortium's Seasonal Malaria Chemo Prevention Program. Saving a Life by Distributing Bed Nets to Protect Against Malaria, $3,000 to $5,000, Against Malaria Foundation. Preventing Blindness from Trachoma or Restoring Sight by Trachoma or Cataract Surgery, $14 to $100, SEVA and the Fred Hollows Foundation. Ending a Woman's Incontinence and Resulting Social Ostracism with Surgery to Repair Obstetric Fistula, $700. Fistula Foundation. If we compare these costs with the sums we spend to save lives in rich nations, we can see that every item on the above list is extraordinarily good value. A 1995 Duke University study of more than 500 life-saving interventions in the United States put the median cost of saving a life at $2.2 million. Government agencies in the U.S. prepare estimates of the value of a life in order to decide whether measures that cost money but save lives, for example, by requiring buildings to use less flammable materials, by building safer roads, or by reducing air pollution, are justifiable. In 2016, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency valued a generic American life at $10 million, while the Federal Department of Transportation in 2015 set a figure of $9.4 million. On all of these figures, 
the interventions described above offer thousands of times better value.